Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on FUBAR Radio. Welcome to the first episode of Politics Uncensored. I am Ali Maloney, your host, uh, and I'm very excited to be joining you uh, for the first edition uh, of our show. Uh, now, some of you might have heard me say this before, but we are really keen uh, on this show to bring you voices and stories that you don't traditionally hear on mainstream media or in mainstream politics. That is why I'm here. Uh, my name is Ali Milani, like I said, and uh, I have spent time as a councillor, as a vice president of a national union, uh, as the parliamentary candidate against Boris Johnson, who was then our prime minister in 2019. I've also worked on presidential campaigns for Sen Senator Bernie Sanders in America. And so I have over a decade of experience in politics. But as I wrote in my book, The Unlikely Candidate, I'm someone who wasn't supposed to become an MP, wasn't supposed to be involved in politics. And I've spent a whole lot of time complaining about politics and I'm tired of complaining and that's what this show is. I want to be done complaining and actually do something about it. And so our show brings you the news, it brings you politics, not where it traditionally is in Westminster, but where it is for all of us in our communities, in our lives and in our society. And so I hope uh, that we can bring you voices and stories and sections of politics that you don't traditionally hear from. Uh, and that will be our aim in, in our journey on this show. Uh, it's clear and I must be clear from the outset, I'm not a journalist, I'm not neutral, I have political positions and I'll make them clear uh, on the show. But what I will also do is aim to bring you voices that are different from mine and opinions that are different from mine uh, so that you can get a full range uh, of views and opinions. So let's get stuck in. Uh, most weeks I'll have a co-host with me, uh, someone uh, based on the themes of what we're going to talk about. This week, all you've got is me and my lovely voice uh, by myself in the studio. I will be joined by some guests uh, later on. So the first thing we do uh, every week is talk about some of the main issues uh, on the political agenda for that week. And how can we talk about anything but former Prime Minister Boris Johnson being grilled by the Privileges Committee on whether he intentionally misled Parliament over Partygate. Now, Boris Johnson is someone who has a, um, let's call it flexible relationship uh, with the truth uh, and someone who has always had a, um, a difficult relationship uh, with uh, telling the truth uh, in the public office. But this week, uh, we've really seen the collapse of his political career uh, as he faced the Privileges Committee on Partygate. Let's listen to what he had to say at the committee. Well, I'm asking about the guidance at the moment. Yes, and, and I'm telling you that I believe the guidance okay, no. is, was... A, uh, so, what, what you've got to understand, when I looked at that group, it did not for one second occur to me that we were in breach of the guidance, given the logistical difficulties we faced okay. in Number 10 and the need to have urgent meetings such as this. It's fair to say that you didn't say that we did every effort to comply with the guidance of the House of Commons, and you didn't say that. No, I'm saying that we followed the guidance completely no. because you can't. You, you, okay, the, right. We'll come to this in a minute. Okay. But you, you can't. Um, you can't expect uh, human beings in an environment like uh, Number Ten uh, to have, as it were, a um, invisible electrified fence around them, they will occasionally drift into each other's orbit. When I saw that, it did not mean to me that we had breached the guidance. It, means, it, meant, it meant that we were following the guidance to the best of our ability, which was what the guidance provided for. Now, that was the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson talking about uh, Partygate and the breaches of what was then COVID guidelines. I cannot believe for the life of me that someone who reached the office of prime minister has the audacity to go in front of a privileges committee and say we followed the guidance completely when we have all seen the pictures, we have heard the reports, he's been fined by the Metropolitan Police for breaching the guidance that he set and he still has the audacity to go in front of a privileges committee and say that they followed the guidance completely, that he still has the audacity to go on in front of MPs and say that we can't expect people, you know, reasonably not to go within each other's orbit, when that's exactly what he was asking millions of people around the country to do, to not see their parents as they were dying or their family as they were dying, to sit at home, not see friends, not even engage in any form of social activity, many of whom's mental health drastically deteriorated, all for good reason, 
all for scientific reasons to stop a deadly pandemic, yet the people who set the guidance, the people who we were supposed to trust to tell us what to do in the worst pandemic that, that we have all experienced in all of our lives were having parties and having drinks in number 10 for Christmas, for birthdays, for leaving dues, yet the man in charge of all of this, the one who the buck stops with him, goes in front of a privileges committee and says that we followed the guidance completely, that we couldn't have reasonably ex expected people working in those environments not to go into each other's orbits. Well, I think what could be reasonably expected is that people who set the rules follow the rules. What could be reasonably expected is that people who have told us that we can't see our dying parents perhaps shouldn't be having drinks uh, for Christmas or shouldn't be having wine and beers over someone leaving or someone's birthday. And so the fact that he's got the audacity to go in front of a privileges committee and, and, and say such, such ridiculous things is an insight into the man's mind. It's an insight into his relationship with the truth. Because up until yesterday, the truth is that Boris Johnson has been able to tell mistruths, to say, to, to, to say obviously divisive issues and lie on the public record and get away with it. He has been lying on the public record his entire career and he's done nothing but succeed through that strategy. Whether we look at his time as a journalist when he made up quotes and was sacked as a result of making up quotes and putting them uh, on our papers, whether it's his comments about Muslim women, his comments about LGBT people and the divisive nature of these and, and incendiary nature of these comments, yet he continued to fail upwards. His time as mayor buying water cannons that clearly would not have worked and were a massive waste of time. Uh, vanity projects like the Garden Bridge, his Brexit campaign putting £350 million on the side of a bus, which was clearly not not true and not going to, to come to fruition. Wallpaper gate, the prorogation of parliament uh, to misleading the queen. His entire career is based on lies. It's based on mistruths. It's based on misleading the public. And no human being on this planet has done more to lower the standard of public life in the United Kingdom than Boris Johnson. And that came to an end last night because I genuinely believe that anyone who has watched his grilling uh, at the Privileges Committee and doesn't see that this is the end of the political career of Boris Johnson is lying to themselves and lying to everyone else. And so at least, at least, if nothing else, we will hopefully see the back of Alexander de Feffel Boris Johnson as a result uh, of Partygate. And that's one of the main stories that we're bringing you this week. The second uh, critical story is uh, on the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and um, his Tory counterpart, Chris Skidmore, have come together to fight climate change deniers. Seen together, they wanted, they said together that they wanted to put aside party politics to focus on getting the green agenda through. And so they hope that coming together in a bipartisan effort uh, will help uh, to tackle the, the issue of uh, climate change denial, both in our society, in our communities, and also uh, in our politics. This is obviously a critical issue and one that we're going to base the rest of this show on. I wanted, uh, as we searched for a theme to our very first, uh, the very first show that we're bringing with, to you today, um, we landed on the only thing that we could really land on, and that's the most critical issue facing uh, our society, our country, and our planet, uh, and that is the the climate crisis uh, that we face. Uh, Sadiq Khan has faced some backlash as a result of ULEZ um, and the introduction of ULEZ, and he has always been very, very clear that uh, the environmental reasons are what um, are, are are the reasons predominantly behind the expansion um, of ULEZ. Uh, and so he's come together with Chris Skidmore uh, to tackle climate change deniers. And so we thought that nothing was more apt to a show uh, that is aiming to bring to you the most topical political issues of our time than the issue of our survival as a planet and as human beings, uh, and that's by addressing the climate agenda. And so I'm joined first uh, by Sasha Wright, who's a research and curriculum coordinator at Force of Nature. I spoke to Sasha earlier today. Um, now, a lot of the conversations around climate change uh, are, are, are the, the issues facing our society and facing um, uh, the country. And 
The IPCC, which is the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has estimated that warming of 2 degrees centigrade as opposed to 1.5 degrees will cause sea levels to rise by an extra 10 centimeters by the year 2100. This could result in millions more people experiencing extreme heat waves, droughts, and exposure to climate risks and poverty. Now, all of this doom and gloom uh, is taking a major toll on young people's mental health, particularly, and there's been reports that as much as as many as 60% of young people are saying they are suffering from something called eco-anxiety. Now, if you're anything like me, the term eco-anxiety is at the very least new to you. Uh, and so I asked Sasha, uh, who is joining us from Force of Nature, to explain it to me like I'm five years old. What is eco-anxiety? Well, I think eco-anxiety is a term that has emerged in relatively recent times to describe really the broad range of emotions that arise when we think about the climate and ecological crisis. Um, anxiety is generally the one that is pinpointed and identified. You hear climate anxiety, you hear eco-anxiety. But in fact, I would say that that is a huge range of emotions. You know, everything from grief to anger, even through to emotions that we see as positive, things like hope and motivation, all of those are encapsulated in this idea of eco-anxiety. Okay, so I guess um, what people who haven't heard the term will be thinking is, are there people who are waking up in the morning and having a sense of anxiety because of the climate crisis? Mm. Um, or is it more complex than that? I think it's far more complex than that. And even when you speak to some people about eco-anxiety, that term doesn't necessarily resonate with them. You know, if you work in the environmental space or you're an activist or you're a you know, climate scientist, it may be the case that you can really attribute your feelings or fears about the future to the looming climate emergency. But for many people, that's much more complicated. It's related to the rising cost of living crisis. It's related to insecurity about the future. It's related to truly a rapidly changing world. And I think one of the important things when we approach things like eco-anxiety is understanding that it shows up in a diversity of ways and spaces, even in people who wouldn't self-identify as being eco-anxious. Mm -hmm. And also a really important point is that it's quite a rational response to the depth of the crisis to be anxious about something that we're told is going to have a huge influence on our lives and livelihoods. And especially for young people thinking about the future that we're going to inherit and many of the things that are going to happen that we haven't really had a huge influence on, that is incredibly frightening. And I think that when we talk about eco-anxiety, shifting the rhetoric from saying, okay, how do we identify and then fix those feelings to saying, actually, what are the root of those feelings? How do we hold space for them, channel them into action, and fundamentally hold people accountable to get to the root, which is the climate crisis? Yeah, and I think, so that's uh, an extremely nuanced and more complex um uh, example than I think a lot of what I would call right-wing skeptics would say. Mm -hmm. So they're often that you know I've heard the term eco-anxiety made fun of as this sort of woke idea yeah. of you know snowflakes, snowflakes <laughs> who can't who can't deal with the issue. Whereas what we're talking about really is uh, predominantly young people who mm -hmm. often feel helpless uh, mm -hmm. in what is looming crises. That may be the environment, which is what we're talking about in yeah. the climate crisis. It can be the cost of living crisis. Yeah. And there's a large amount of issues mm -hmm. that are affecting their day-to-day -day lives mm -hmm. um, that they are completely out of control of. Absolutely. And I think it's been pathologized or sort of medicalized in many ways. But in fact, eco-anxiety is very simply being fearful about a reality that we know is likely coming to pass that science tells us is likely to be true. Yep. And many of the young people that we've spoken to, exactly when they enter into these conversations, it becomes highly politicized, yep. when in fact it's quite a simple and rational response to a fear. Yeah, and one of the things we're trying, we, we, uh, I'm very conscious of doing, mm -hmm. climate crisis is often described as something that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's here, it's oh, now. Oh, absolutely. There are uh, climate refugees in the UK right now. Absolutely. I, I mean, more recently, I think we saw the, the floods in Pakistan. Yeah. Um, and obviously, if you're of Pakistani heritage, if you've got family there, if you've got friends there, or even if, yeah. even if you're not, you're seeing that is a very you know looming crisis. Absolutely, especially for parts of the world who have done very little to nothing to contribute to the crisis and are now bearing the worst consequences of that. They definitely have the greatest consequences when it comes to their mental health. I mean, you yeah. speak to activists from the global south for whom climate crisis is a lived reality. And for them, eco-anxiety shows up in very different ways or climate-related emotions shows up in very yeah. different ways than it would in the UK. And I guess the question is, look, the conversation nowadays seems to be what percentage of the UK is going to be underwater in 50 to 100 years, right? Yes. What percentage does it have to be for anxiety to be a realistic and reasonable response? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I think... 
it might be a slightly different question in my mind because I think it's less about the proportion of people who are feeling this anxiety and this fear and it's actually more about who is feeling it. Yeah. Um, like this research, we contributed to some landmark research that took place in 2021 out of the University of Bath and it surveyed 10,000 young people in 10 countries and sort of posed this question um, about their climate-related emotions and that found that about 45%, about half of young people globally surveyed uh, experienced climate anxiety on a daily basis. But critically, what this study actually illuminated is the link between that and a feeling of betrayal towards mm-hmm. the government that young people were experiencing. This sort of feeling that those people in positions of power who had been appointed to safeguard their futures were in fact failing to give them an, a habitable future. And I think that that feeling of betrayal is really key because it shows that the people who have the power and influence to change things are not feeling the fire behind them, so mm-hmm. to speak. And it's actually those who are inheriting the consequences of it that are feeling anxious. Yeah, I mean, the fire behind them, the, those in power and those decision makers are feeling is really the fossil fuel lobbyists and oh yeah like all of the vested interests that go into that for sure yeah okay so lastly um there's been a you know we've talked a little bit about the doom and gloom Mm -hmm. how do we turn this anxiety into action yeah, this is a really important question, and I think very simply, I work for Force of Nature. We're a youth nonprofit, and we create spaces for young people to come together, validate, hold space for these emotions, and then channel them into action. And fundamentally, the most important thing is naming it and identifying it, and then finding other people who feel the same way, bringing that out into the open. A lot of what we hear from young people is that they do feel sort of gaslighted or they do feel invalidated in these feelings because it's construed as something of the snowflake generation, when in fact it's a very valid and rational reaction that they're having. So I think the way to channel this into action is finding ways to connect with other people through that collective action and kind of having that agency. That was Sasha Wright, who is a research and curriculum coordinator at Force of Nature. Thank you so much, Sasha, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So there we heard uh, the, the, this conversation around eco-anxiety. And um, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, in, when we were speaking earlier with some of the producers of this show, um, I, I, I had to be honest, I didn't know what eco-anxiety was. It's something that I'd heard that kind of we giggled at. Um, and while I, understand, I understood sort of intellectually what it was, um, I couldn't really bring myself emotionally to understand um, what people meant when they said eco-anxiety. Uh, and Sasha Wright so eloquently put it, uh, in 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 that it's not just one emotion, but it's a multiplicity of emotions, and it can absolutely be uh, a, a spur into action. So I'm so grateful for Sasha uh, for joining us and so eloquently explaining uh, what eco anxiety is, not what it is purported to be by um, by climate change deniers and uh, and right wing. Uh, uh, let's call them nutters and be kind to them. Um, we, we, we're going to move on. We're going to talk about a, a little bit more about the policy end um, of of the climate crisis uh, and environmentalism and what more we can do um, to tackle uh, climate change uh, as a country and as a state. Uh, we're going to be joined by Michael Jacobs, who's a professor of political economy at the University of Sheffield. Uh, he's joining us after this. FUBAR Radio presents Michael Payne and Marcel Somerville. We've got our second guest of the day, and he goes by the name Darren Harriet. It's nice because you do a show in like an arts festival, and they're much more forgiving. Right. It's arty, isn't it? They're all yeah. just like, oh, hello, who's this guy? Let's see what he has to say. Oh, <laughs> hey, he's from the Midlands, and he's black. Oh, this is different. You know, they relax. And they, oh, yeah, very nice. But I'm like, hey, what about if I'm in Crawley on a Wednesday? It needs to be a real hit them hard show, mm, right. as opposed to like, is that, the, the, is that the comedy equivalent of a Stoke? on a freezing Tuesday yeah, night yeah, yeah. Football. I was going to say Stoke in my head I realised there's no Stoke dates but I was literally going to say Stoke on a Tuesday Michael Payne and Marcel Somerville every Wednesday from 4pm Fubar Radio So welcome back. We have uh, Michael Jacobs with us today. He's a professor of political economy at the University of Sheffield, uh, former senior advisor to the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate, uh, aimed to help governments, businesses and society make better informed decisions on how to achieve economic prosperity, uh, while also addressing climate change. Uh, Also a former special advisor to Gordon Brown from 2007 to 2010. Uh, and um, played a critical role in the 2008 Climate Change Act. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to have you. Um, my first question is, you, you know, you were instrumental in drafting the landmark 2008 Climate Change Act. Uh, here we are 15 years later. Um, how would you say, what position do you think we are in now uh, following that bill? 
we're in a much better position than we would have been without it. Uh, and uh, you might say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? But I think what you need to understand about the Climate Change Act is that it doesn't just, it wasn't an act that the Labour government, which passed it, um, uh, complied with. It's been complied with by all the Conservative governments, first the Coalition, then the Conservatives on their own, that came after 2010. And they have been required to follow the Climate Change Act, even though in particularly after the coalition, so from 2015 onwards, when the Conservatives are ruling on their own, they really didn't want to. So the Conservatives didn't really want to do uh, climate change policy in any serious way. And indeed, the first thing that uh, David Cameron did once he was free of the Lib Dems, if you like, <clears throat> after the 2015 election, was famously say, let's get rid of all this green crap. And there was a kind of bonfire of climate legislation in 2015. Um, a whole range of things which the government had been doing uh, since Labour's days through the coalition, which were abolished. And then a couple of years later, the government was forced to reinstate much of that climate policy because the Climate Change Act had set statutory targets which were legally uh, obligatory for the government to reach and in that sense the the act has kind of outlasted the government which passed it that doesn't happen with a lot of policy basically if one government uh, does something then the next government can not do mm -hmm. carry on with that yeah but that's not what's happened under the climate change act and in that sense i think we and we've seen it again now the government is literally having to rewrite its current climate plan because the high court said your plan isn't good enough they were taken to the high court by an environmental ngo client mm -hmm. earth and they're going to have to rewrite it now that doesn't normally happen in politics so that's all because of the structure of the act which places legal obligations on the government to achieve as it is now net zero yeah so uh, you know you spoke of the bonfire of um of climate legislation um that the conservatives went on now I'm curious as to why that is, because they're looking at the same data we are. They're looking at the same research and scientific um, evidence that we are, which is basically saying the planet is on fire and we need to do something about this. This isn't an ideological position. You know, almost all of the scientists in this area agree that we're headed towards catastrophe. So, you know, if you were to ask me, I'd say they're idiots. But what, what's a more eloquent answer than they're idiots as to why they're doing this? Um, the, the sciences, of course, we've just had a publication literally this week uh, of the latest of the science. Um, the, uh, the rather horrifying thing about it is that we've heard it all before because it's, we've known it for some time. So although this is a new, what we've had this week from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the, the world's scientists um, gathered together, thousands of them, um, is pretty much the same as they've been saying for the last five years now. Um, and uh, so, but uh, periodically, as you say, the science is kind of reported uh, to the public and it is pretty terrible. We are, as you say, heading for, uh, we're going to, we're going to probably miss the 1.5 degree of warming, which the international community has said is, should be the limit. Um, and uh, we are headed for 2.5, 2 2.7, 2 2.8 degrees. And at those temperatures, we see really serious things going on. If you think that the, the wildfires, um, the droughts, the floods, the hurricanes, the ice uh, caps melting is bad now, and it is pretty bad now, those temperature rises would be really catastrophic. So can I, can I you ask, say, when, you, top, when yeah. you talk about catastrophic, I really want to paint in listeners' minds, the average listener who, who won't have an environmental degree or you know any sort of expert understanding of this. What does it mean? What does it mean for their lives? So in practice, those numbers like one and a half degrees or whatever are global averages and not every country will experience the global average rise in temperature. What will happen in the UK is that, as we already know, temperatures will be higher. So on average, the temperature will be will be uh, one or two degrees higher at all times of the, the year. That will be accompanied um, likely by more extreme kinds of weather. So we will see more extreme cold when it's cold, extreme rainfall, uh, which risks uh, 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 floods um, and some more extreme droughts. 
and there will be heat waves of the kind that we've had actually over the last couple of years where we have consistently much higher temperatures than we would expect so it's so there'll be a general rise in the temperature and then more extreme versions of the weather mm-hmm. um, we however in the uk which is in the nice temperate zone of the world will not have the worst effects the worst effects will occur in the equatorial regions where you have a real risk of rainforests dying because they there's not enough water you have the growth of deserts you have the the areas that were fertile for agriculture no longer being uh, as fertile but that also i mean disrupt that will then disrupt food supplies exactly so we would expect food prices in particular to rise very considerably under those conditions. Um, There might be some compensations because there might be some areas further north, for example, that will become more fertile. So it's not a, the the exact implications of the food prices are not as clear. You will almost certainly have people moving around. Migration is almost certain to increase because some of those places will become very difficult to live. Um, That will mainly be a problem for neighboring countries and so on, but migration is obviously an issue that some people uh, care about. And you will have a very disrupted world so natural disasters will occur kind of all the time i mean in a way we've already got that but you will have um it'll be very difficult for the global economy to kind of grow consistently in any in any kind of way because there will be disruptions to food supplies and other kind of supplies somewhere going on in the world all the time and for some people this will mean death i mean that we are likely to see um kind of very extreme conditions a lot of people die of heat problems already that will including in developed countries like ours in in extreme heat many more people will do that and so on so and you will get species extinctions at a very high rate much higher than even now and that will affect kind of the way in which the earth systems work so the science it's basically um it's a it's incredibly disruptive to the kinds of ways of life that we've developed over the last 500 years or so the kind of temperature rises that we're looking at have not been seen on the earth for 10,000 years. So we've developed, you know, as a human civilization in very benign temperatures, and we're going to move outside those temperatures. So this is going to be- Yeah, I I think what's what's important to me to make clear is because people will hear, we've missed our 1.5 degree deadline, or we're likely to miss our 1.5 degree, sorry, goal of increase and it might be two two and a half degrees increase in temperature and folks will hear that and go you know that's the difference between my flat being 20 degrees and 22 degrees but what that means in reality is what you've just described floods disruptions in food supply disruptions in food prices mass refugee crises based on you know people um in uh, in other countries having their homes flooded or natural disasters and obviously here in the uk not only are we likely to see more floods and and, and weather change in weather patterns but also the extreme heat and extreme cold we've already seen homeless people dying on the street as a result of extreme cold elderly people elderly people we've had heat waves folks who can't elderly, afford yeah. to to heat their homes and that the, you know there's a very real reality we, we, you so know we've, let's, I, let's I think we've spoken about then. yeah i'm just going to ask you if you wrap this into your to your answer, because yeah. um, I, I think you're going to go there anyway. Um, one of the things I've seen this week is the founder of the Green Party kind of had this very doom and gloom. It's over. Um, there's nothing more that we can really do. Um, what would you say? Obviously, we've heard now we've heard the the real impacts of climate change. But what more do we need to do? How does the next 10 years need to look different to the last 10 to at least mitigate some of what's coming? We need to treat this as an emergency. One of the things that I think people may have noticed over the last year is when Russia invaded Ukraine, then lots of the things that government had said about public spending needed to rein in public spending have been thrown out the window. We have spent more or less unlimited amounts of money on supporting Ukraine. Why? Because we saw this as an existential threat to Western values, not to say the Ukrainian people, and we mobilized money and in other countries political commitments that they never had before germany exporting arms in a way that they've never done before sweden and finland joining nato we reacted to an emergency by treating it as an emergency but we're not doing that with climate change so what we have to do is we have to commit ourselves as a society and as governments 
uh, not just one government, but several, to this radical reduction in our emissions. We know how to do it. That is, the technologies already exist. We know how to, how to insulate our homes. We know how to build wind power and solar power. But we have to be committed to actually doing it. And where there are obstacles, overcoming those obstacles, it will cost money. But it will be money that we will then save, because the energy uh, will almost certainly be cheaper than the energy we have at the moment in due course. And that has to be a commitment that we kind of accept that we're living in this world. We have to deal with the issues. And in answer to your, you know, your first question, why do the governments, why have conservative governments kind of been less keen on this agenda? The issue of climate change is not ideological, but what you have to do about it, unfortunately, is a bit ideological because it needs governments to act. And in general, Labour governments have been more willing to say, let's use the power of government um, to uh, improve our economy than conservative ones have. So you have to say we will have renewable energy and we will overcome the obstacles to getting it. And the only way you can do that is by government saying that's going to be a legal obligation. If we need to subsidise it for a while, we will do so. But if the subsidy is too great, we may need to run it from from with a nationalised industry. Um, you need to say we are not going to allow huge SUVs to roam around our, our city streets because not only are they are they uh, can they they cause congestion and danger, but they mm -hmm. simply use too much uh, fuel. I, and there will I, be yeah. some people who don't like it, but governments have to act on our collective behalf. This, this is the point of government; it's collective, and we will need interventions on a scale, and that's what America and the European unions are doing. And this is why this is yeah. such an interesting moment because Joe Biden has said we are going to go big on environmental technologies. We're going to subsidise them, give you tax breaks. The European Union is doing the same. And we're competing in that world. So this is somewhere where government has to act. And in the end, we're going to have to accept as voters that that's yeah. what government is for. I, I really like your, the analogy with Ukraine and Russia is a really, really good one because we did act as, as a real emergency. And, and the questions as to why that's not being paralleled with, a, with something that, you know, at its worst is questions around whether the planet will be habitable for us as a species um, it, it is a good one. One of the things that annoys me, uh, tell me if I'm right or wrong, one of the things that bothers me is how often the issues around climate and the actions that need to be taken get pushed onto the individual's uh, responsibility. And yes, I absolutely accept that every individual in this country and around the world has, has a duty to do what they can um, to, to mitigate the impacts of, of, of climate change. But we're limited. I mean, as an individual, Ali Milani is very limited in what I can do. But it seems to be that the... That the political game has been let's push as much responsibility on the individual as we can and avoid as much responsibility as a state as we can because the reality is from what i understand to tackle this issue we have to act as a state to use all the arms and powers of the state to curb back emissions as opposed to pushing it on whether you're using plastic bags at home or whether you know you're cycling to work or not and that's why we have government government is our collective uh, will and why we have a democracy is we know that there are some things that we can't do as individuals. If I want to have a decent uh, health care, I need a collectively organised health system. And it's much cheaper, we know, the NHS than private, uh, private medicine. That's what government does. If we want schools, we need governments to do it. And to act on climate change, we need governments to do it. And the, your responsibility as an individual is primarily to vote for those governments and accept the things that they do democratically chosen in order to act collectively and you're completely right you can't do it as an individual if you want to for example use less plastic you can use some less plastic but you know that that will only really be effective if everybody else is also using less plastic how do you get everybody to do it and not just the people exactly. who kind of overtly yeah. care you have to put some regulations in place or some taxes and that's why you use the you arm of the state the to do so and that's what the state can do it can get everybody to do yeah. something and it's only useful if everybody does something. So individual action is very important for people to feel like they are making contribution and to accept some personal responsibility because we all have do have personal responsibilities. But in the end, your primary responsibility here is to vote for governments who are going to save the planet, if you want to put it that way, protect the planet for our for for people of your generation if i may say this uh and uh, and uh you know anybody who's going to live through to 2050 which is most people 
mm-hmm. now. This isn't about future people. This is about people who live now. And that's what governments are for. And so this offloading, as you say, onto individual responsibility just mis- misunderstands the nature of what we need to do. And in a way, it's a kind of excuse for government, to yeah. be perfectly honest. Governments that don't want to do it, don't want to take on the interests that are opposed, don't want to have to explain to voters that this might cost a little bit more, this might restrict some of the things that you wanted to do. Um, but in the end, that's why we have governments. We have governments to do the things that we can't do as individuals. Yeah. And acting on climate change is one of them. Yeah, so we're very short on time. I want to ask you two very quick questions if you can answer them quickly let's pretend i'm rishi sunak and sat next to me is Keir Starmer. one of us is going to be the next prime minister um at the next general election if there's one or two things that you would say to me directly that i have to do to tackle this issue what would they be so on uh so the first thing i would ask is uh what is your plan to reduce our emissions from our energy system over the next 10 to 15 years, not all the way to 2050, because we're going to need to do most of this in the next 10 years. Can you show me how we will get that extra investment into solar power and wind power and insulating homes um, and uh, renewable heat? Um, What is your mechanism for spending that money and getting those uh, those investments in and the jobs that will go with them because it's no longer yeah. enough to say give me I'll give you a target I don't want to know the targets now I want to know what are the measures that you're going to put in place and the second one I would say is are you going to support the rest of the world to do this too we have huge obligations to the countries that we once colonized and are now poorer than we are but also want to contribute to reducing emissions and to adapting to the climate change they already experienced what is your commitment to the whole world's uh, action on this and not just the UK's. Thank you so much, Michael. Really appreciate you joining us. That was Michael Jacobs, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Sheffield, uh, former Special Advisor to Gordon Brown from 2007 to 2010. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. Pleasure. Moving on next, we've got Inside Westminster. So this is a segment uh, that we have put together, which is getting the inside scoop from the heart of Westminster, the stories uh, of what it's like to work in Westminster, what it's like um, to to be an MP or to be a staff member. Uh, and so what we are asking you to do is to email us any stories you might have anonymously to politicsuncensored at foobarradio.com. That's politicsuncensored at foobarradio.com because we want to hear for if you're in Westminster or if you have been in Westminster in our political bubble and have interesting stories, important stories, funny stories, um, or, or you know, quite um, shocking experiences uh, in Westminster. We want to hear from you and so we can discuss what really goes on uh, in Westminster. Next, uh, I've got another guest joining me, completely different end of the scale. We've got Anna Holland, who's a spokesperson from Just Stop Oil, uh, based out in, in Newcastle, joining us. She's going to speak to us after this. Fubar Radio presents Access All Areas. So we have our final guest, um, Chloe Vetch on. Hi. Hello. 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 You're right. So, what is your type? So, obviously, someone who ain't sliding in the DMs. I go for media ugly. Mm. Oh. But hear me out. I didn't realise this until after my last ex. When I looked Ooh, back at my exes, and I was like, "Wow," because love is really blind. <laughs> I'm like, okay, uh, this is clearly my type. Access all areas. Every Thursday. Fubar Radio. Right, welcome back. This is Ali Milani, Politics Uncensored on Fubar Radio. We're delighted now to have Anna Holland joining us, uh, a spokesperson from Just Stop Oil, um, climate change activist based in Newcastle. Uh, one of the campaigners who you might have seen on social media throw the soup at the Van Gogh painting Sunflowers and glue themselves to the wall. Uh, she was arrested but later released on bail and her trial is scheduled for 2024. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. What kind of soup did you throw at the Van Gogh? <laughs> what was it? It was Heinz cream of tomato. Oh, cream of tomato. I like yeah. cream of tomato. Um, <laughs> listen, thank you so much for joining us. One of the first questions I'm going to ask you, and you know what it's going to be, um, the, the, the main criticism of Just Stop Oil, yourself, uh, has been the um, the nature of your actions to raise both awareness and disruption on the issue of climate change. We've spent the most of the show today talking about uh, the existential crisis that is climate change. Uh, and so for those who have come through this journey with us, you know, minor disruptions might seem uh, reasonable, 
given that the entire planet is on fire. But what would you say to critics who say you go too far? Absolutely. So the criticism that you know people will agree with our cause in our whole methods is one of the most common criticisms uh, I, I ever get. And it's often paired with, you should try going on marches or signing petitions or contacting your local member of parliament. And the fact of the matter is, I spent four years of my life organizing marches and attending them and signing more petitions than I can count and contacting my local member of parliament so much, I think that he's entirely sick of me. And in those four years, um, all my efforts and all my energy achieved absolutely nothing. And then after just a year of taking direct constructive action with just a oil, we got more people than ever talking about the climate crisis and every single political party in the UK, apart from the Tories and the entire Scottish government have agreed with our demand of no new oil and gas. Mm -hmm. So, look, you've taken quite a personal step as well, because obviously you're now on trial. So you, there's personal ramification of that. What got you to that moment where you thought, you know, screw it, I'm, you know, I, I have to take serious direct action here, even if it's detrimental to my own personal life, but something's got to be done. What, what's the sort of journey that got you to that point? Um, I first became worried about the climate crisis when I was 13, so in 2015, uh, when the 2015 Paris Agreement was signed. And since that moment, I've watched every year as, I was, as our government has not only ignored the climate crisis, but have actively fueled it and fueled the destruction of my future for their own personal wealth. So last year, we had the worst heat wave that the UK has ever seen. And in just two days, over 1,700 people were killed by something that the government could have very easily prevented. I've watched our government take genocidal measures, and I've felt utterly powerless against that. So it got to a point where I couldn't allow myself to just sit by and watch them continue to destroy my future and the future of my little sisters, I, I would never have been able to look them in the eye again if I didn't take any kind of action to protect their future. Yeah, uh, look, some of the criticisms that have come particularly Just Stop Oil's way um, has been that it's predominantly, you know, middle class, wealthy people who have a little bit too much time on their hands. I don't subscribe to that view, but I want you to give a chance to really hit back at those kind of, uh, uh, at those kind of, criticisms in just a foil i have sat on roads alongside every single kind of person i myself am a university student i get by only on the maintenance loan that comes in from the government and i've been sat on the road next to construction workers next to teachers next to priests next to doctors next to any sort of person you can imagine because the climate crisis is going to affect all of us regardless of our social class and even though they would like to ignore it, it is also going to affect the conservatives and oil executives who are killing us. So because the climate crisis is going to affect all of us, it doesn't discriminate on class or gender or race. We all need to come together in this fight against it. And so, um, you know, there's not the soup throwing incident because that, that was unique. Um, but there's been instances of people gluing themselves onto roads and disrupting um, traffic. Um, and a lot of people hit by that will be working class people who are just trying to you know, make money to, to survive. Um, and so some of the criticisms have been that you're attacking the wrong people. You know, you're attacking people, not the, the people who are making the decisions, the power brokers in Westminster, but rather the ordinary Joe who's trying to get to, to, to work. What would be your response to that? And I agree that this is absolutely horrible, that we do have to disrupt just ordinary, everyday people like ourselves uh, when, you know, they're just trying to get to work, they're just trying to make a living. But we have tried disrupting the oil industry before. Last April, Just Off Oil went to the oil industry and we blocked uh, oil terminals, oil tankers, we trespassed onto oil pipelines and no one heard about it, nothing changed because of it. Because unfortunately, with the state of mainstream media today, journalists will not report on us unless we disrupt the public. This is the only measure that we can take that will get climate crisis into the conversation where it needs to be. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, there seems to be, and it's not just with the environmental stuff. To me, there seems to be a fundamental misunderstanding of what protest is. Um, and it's not just, like I said, environmental crisis, but those, you know, there's people marching, um, 
for all sorts of issues and we seem to keep coming back in the media with but you're causing too much disruption isn't that the point of protest exactly women didn't get the vote by voting for it so let's come to a, a slightly different topic um uh, surrounding just stop oil and and the climate activist movement it's something that i have felt and seen and that is uh there seems to be a little bit of a gap of uh you know people from people of color being involved in the the climate movement uh given that predominantly the global south is going to be affected at least first if not more uh than um than than us here uh in the, in the uk it doesn't seem like the climate movement is representative of that what would you say about that absolutely and in fact the global south is being affected now because of the climate crisis you know and i think it is horrible that you know the climate crisis movement or at least in just stop oil we're not we are a, a predominantly white organization but unfortunately our methods do involve us risking arrests and risking getting criminal records and dealing with the police and as a white person, I am incredibly privileged that that is something that will not have as traumatizing an effect on me as a person of color would have to deal with police. So, so, it, so do you think it, 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 in some ways, maybe you're saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you know, that you're using that privilege to raise the issue because you're able to, whereas if a person of color was to have that level of engagement with police, the outcomes might be very different. Essentially, yeah, I would feel horrible if, you know, if I didn't take action and a person of colour took action and ended up having some traumatic interaction with the police, you know, it's, as I say, as a white person, I'm in a much better position to be able to get arrested and have that interaction with the judiciary system, which has been proven time and time again to discriminate horribly against people of colour. But I guess equally, uh, the fact that so many of these climate activist organizations are predominantly white also means issues like um, the refugee crisis, which you cannot, you know, uh, detach from the climate crisis, the refugee crisis, um, you know, issues such as uh, the, the racism that exists in a lot of our, 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 our the, the policies that are passed by, by the government uh, surrounding climate crisis, things like reparations and other things. Um, they just not talked about um, as much as the soup throwing, for example, because these organizations are so white. So does there not need to be a serious move within the, you know, the, the climate organizations and the activists to make sure that these groups and organizations are more representative so that these issues can be spoken about? No, well, absolutely now. Of course, I can't speak for the entire climate movement. So, <laughs> uh, so Just Up Oil is just sort of seen as a project within the wider movement. So yeah. our only focus is stopping oil and gas in the UK. Um, but it's an impact that the climate crisis, just 20 years down the line, is going to cause not just millions of deaths, but billions of climate refugees. And when we are faced with the refugee crisis that we are staying with, asylum seekers in the UK being horribly abused by the system, it's only going to get exponentially worse if we don't try and stop the climate crisis now. So, of course, that conversation needs to be had, and we need to shift that conversation. But, you know, as I say, Just Off Oil is one project that's only focused on oil and gas mm. in the UK. That's a conversation for the wider climate movement. Yeah. And so uh, um, Extinction Rebellion recently have announced that they're going to be moving away from using public disruptions uh, as a protest tactic. Is that something Just Stop Oil are thinking about or are you guys in a different frame of mind? Absolutely not. We're going to continue with disruptive actions until the government meets our demand of no new oil and gas. It's the only thing that we can do to win this fight. What What are you planning next? Are you going to give me a little, little, little hint? Uh, I can't. Does it involve soup? I haven't heard <laughs> anything about soup. I try to avoid that word as much as possible now. Okay, so uh, one of the last questions: um, the the disruption is one element, the protest is one element, but surely there has to be a move towards turning this um this drive into votes um is there a way that we can make the climate issue not only on the mainstream agenda and the news and us talking about it here on the radio show but a key component of the next general election is that something that's in in the minds of at just stop oil is not just how much disruption can we cause but can we turn this disruption into 
a key debating point when the two next candidates of prime minister stand on stage and, and discuss their plans for the future? Well, we have already seen that shift begin to take place. You know, as I say, no new oil and gas is on the political manifesto of every single party apart from the Conservatives. But unfortunately, we are at a place in the in the climate crisis that we can't wait as long as the next general election for action to be taken. We simply don't have that time. You know, scientists have predicted that by 2025, uh, by 2035, even just 12 years into the future, the summer that we just had, where 1,700 people were killed in two days, where crops caught fire in the fields and apples baked on the trees, in just 12 years' time, that's going to become an average summer. And we won't be able to survive that. That is a blatant fact. That is unsurvivable. And we, so with that just 12 years down the line, I'll only be 33 by that time. We don't have time to just sit and wait for the next election. Change needs to happen now. So even though there has been positive progress in other political parties, we need the Conservatives who are currently in power to make that change. And so let's pretend I was um, Rishi Sunak. Lord, mm -hmm. forgive me. Um, <laughs> and you were talking directly to the Prime Minister or I was Keir Starmer and I could potentially be the next Prime Minister. And, and you had a couple of demands that I, of things I absolutely had to do. What would you say to me? Uh, first of all, if I was talking to Shisunak right now, I would say... Keep it PG, how... yeah, let's not... Let's... Yes, no, absolutely. I'm joking. I'm joking, you can swear, we don't... We're, we're all right with that. Uh, if I was talking to Rishi Sunak, I would say, how dare you be so arrogant as to think that your personal bank account is the only thing that's important. You weren't voted in by the population, you were voted in by 202 of your own party members. You do not represent my views. You do not represent the views of my generation. You do not represent the views of anyone other than your own circle of friends. So if you, if you want to see the disruption of Just Off World come to an end, because I know we are getting to you, I know we are making you angry and nervous and frightened, just like I am angry and frightened about my future, you will stop new oil and gas. All the leading scientists are telling you to stop oil and gas. The IPCC report is saying it, the UN, the International Energy Agency. Listen to your own scientists. Listen to anyone other than your own financial advisor and the oil executives who are greasing your pockets. Do the right thing and protect the children of your country. That's, and yeah, what, that's what about if I was Keir Starmer of the Labour Party? I would say you are not doing enough. You have put an end to oil and gas in your political manifesto, but you are not backing the striking workers right now. You are not backing disruptive protests. Goes for the foundations of the labor movement. If you come into power, you need to act on your promise to end oil and gas, and you need to do it fast because we are running out of time. And it's terrifying. Okay, thank you so much, Anna, for joining us. Um, I'm, I'm really appreciative uh, of your time. That was Anna Holland, a spokesperson for Just Stop Oil uh, and a climate change activist based in Newcastle and one of the campaigners who you will have famously seen uh, who threw soup at the Van Gogh painting Sunflowers and glued themselves to a wall. Thank you so much, Anna, for joining us. All right, uh, next segment we have is Word on the Street. So what we are going to do over the coming weeks is I don't want you to just hear from me to hear from our wonderful guests who join us, our co-hosts who, who will be joining me on a weekly basis. But I want to hear from you. Uh, and so we've sent uh, our wonderful producers uh, out onto the streets, uh, into the streets of Islington to find out what people really think. And this week, our question is, should Boris Johnson be punished for Partygate? Yeah, of course, because he can't go around saying to people that... Um they should be in lockdown and he goes and throws parties, obviously, like everybody. Rules are for everybody. So. He should have been skinned alive when he was mayor of London and perhaps then he could have been hoodwinked the rest of the country. I'd be happy to uh, light the coals. I think ultimately politicians, specifically Tory politicians, have a long history of being able to just get away with whatever they want and I don't think that's fair and it's important to hold people accountable. No, because... Um, I think he made a mistake, and we've all made mistakes, and uh, we all like drink, and we all like partying, and I think maybe he could be given a third chance. 
Um, my opinion is that Boris Johnson shouldn't have remained Prime Minister for many other reasons, and I, I'm not going to spend hours listing them all, but there are many. A party gate didn't worry me as much. If, if people wanted a beer after work when they had a big work and they were in work, so be it. Um, but there are so many things that he could have been sacked over and should have been sacked over. So many families and friends weren't able to see each other, missed birthdays, holidays, funerals. And if we had to be punished, why should he not be punished? Yes, I do. Yeah, he does. He, they should throw the book at him. That's a really good question, actually. Um, because on the one hand, he was telling people what to do and then not following it. But on the other hand, he's working with a very close bunch of people. So I'm sort of wavering in the middle. Yeah, yeah, it depends what the punishment is, I suppose. Yeah, he's the he was the leader of the country at the time and he lead by example. And the example he set was disgusting. End of. There we have people on the street that are reacting to uh, should Boris Johnson be punished for Partygate. And it's interesting that the standard uh, that people expect uh, of a public official is so much higher in the streets of Islington than it is in, in Westminster. The fact that you heard all those voices talk about the importance of following the rules that you've set, of being truthful in public office uh, and being an example, particularly in a time of pandemic, in a time when one of the deadliest pandemics that we have experienced in all of our lives hit, the least we could expect is the Prime Minister, the person who holds the highest rank of office in the United Kingdom, to lead by example, to follow the rules, to tell us the truth, to be honest with us, is the least we expect in standard of office. Uh, the fact that that is higher than the MPs who continue to propagate Boris Johnson, who continue to sing his praises, and for the few in the Conservative Party who are, are still under this illusion that there will be some great comeback of Boris Johnson. Um, it, it is heartening to hear that, that the people of this country, uh, the people on the streets of Islington, maintain that high standard of public office. And so if nothing else this week, I can bring you with great joy, uh, with happiness, uh, but with uh, with bittersweetness that we have had to go through the last years that we have, it is that the Privileges Committee should, by all accounts, put the nail in the coffin of Boris Johnson's political career. And we can see the back of that charlatan, that liar, and the man who has been responsible uh, for more damage to the standards in public life than anyone I have ever seen, at least in my lifetime. Right, folks, that's all we have for you this week. It went in a blur. Thank you so much for joining us for the debut episode of Politics Uncensored. Like I told you at the outstart, my absolute goal on this show is to bring you the voices that you haven't heard, the voices that are often ignored, the stories that we don't hear in our mainstream politics and our media. And it was so important to us to begin the show on what I believe to be the most fundamental issue facing our politics, our society and our world, and that's the looming climate crisis. So thank you to Michael, to Sasha, to Anna from Just Stop Oil for joining us uh, and discussing these issues and, and sharing their expertise. Thank you for everyone on, in our Vox Pops uh, on the streets of Islington. Uh, and I am delighted to say that next week we're going to be joined by Ellie Flynn, an investigative journalist to discuss women's rights and the challenges facing women uh, right now. This is particularly following the murder, uh, the tragic uh, murder of Sarah Everard. And so I can't wait uh, to hear the experiences and the stories of Ellie and um, and discuss uh, this pivotal issue. Thank you to all of you for listening in. You can follow us uh, on Instagram at Politics Uncensored. You can catch me on Twitter at ARMilani underscore. So by searching Ali Milani, you should be able to find me. And you can listen back to this show on demand on all good podcasting platforms, on FUBAR Radio's website, uh, through iTunes uh, and through any platform that you might hold. Thank you again for joining us. This is just the beginning of our journey on Politics Uncensored. I'll see you next week. Salams. FUBAR Radio presents Callum McSwiggan. 
I'm very lucky, very fortunate, in fact, today because I am joined in the studio by the stunning, the gorgeous Lucy and the Mayor. One of the things that comes up a lot with like bi visibility, etc., in general, is that there can be quite a bit of I don't want to say hate, but like there's almost like negativity that comes from within the community Absolutely. as well as outside of it. Is that is that something that you've ever experienced personally? Oh, speak to any bisexual about dating within the LGBT community. It's incredible how many times I've gone on a date with someone who identifies as lesbian, and the second I say I'm bisexual. They're really? over it. They don't want anything to do with me. That's utterly absurd to me. I, I, I can't fathom that. Is it? Wh oh, it, it's a thing. What is their logic for doing Great that? Great question. It, yeah, you're like, I don't Great know. Great question. <laughs> Callum McSwiggan. Every Wednesday from 6 p.m. Fubar Radio. Fubar Radio presents Harriet Rose. Duckworth is here. Yeah. Does it feel weird watching yourself back? Mm -mm. As long as I'm doing well. If yeah. it's like moments where like I like totally suck, like my face was weird, or like <laughs> I don't know, like just something weird, like a nip slip or some shit like that. I'm just like, what's oh, wrong God. with the nip slip? I mean, like there has to be an intentional nip slip. Like what, it's like, like Janet Jackson nip slip vibes. Hmm, was that know. intentional? I don't know if that was intentional or. Oh okay. Well, I don't know. Whatever it was, it was iconic, hun. It was great. It was iconic. It definitely was iconic. That was one of the best nip slips ever in the world. I would say it's my favorite nip slip. It has to be. Harriet Rose. Every Thursday from 4 p.m. Fubar Radio. 